This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, it's Indira. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may be different by the time you hear this episode. So stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Indira Lakshmanan of the Associated Press, and it's time for the News Roundup. Let's get into it. For all the fights that play out here in Washington, there are still a few things that Congress usually finds easy to do. Sending aid to Israel has been one of them. Well, not this time. It has little to do with those who are concerned about using U.S. taxpayer dollars to fund Israel's war against Hamas. It has more to do with the U.S. agency that we rely on to collect those tax dollars. Reducing the IRS doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, The reason we have the IRS is to make sure people pay their taxes. Republican Senator Mitt Romney isn't the only one confused by what his colleagues in the House have been up to this week. Fortunately, we have a panel of top reporters to help us make sense of this and the rest of the week's news. With us, Arthur Delaney, senior reporter at HuffPost. Thanks for being here, Arthur. Great to be here. Anita Kumar is senior managing editor at Politico. Anita, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. And Alex Thompson is national political correspondent for Axios. Hi, Alex. Hey, great to be here. So we're going to talk about tensions in the U.S. over aid to Israel, but let's start with growing calls for a ceasefire in the Middle East. On Thursday, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin became the first U.S. senator to call for a halt to the war in Gaza. Whatever the rationale from the beginning, it has now reached an intolerable level. We need to have a resolution in the Middle East that gives some promise for the future. Have you told the president, the White House, you think it's time for a ceasefire? Because that is a word that the president is intentionally not using. Believe me, what I said earlier about ceasefires under circumstances, for example, the release of those who have been kidnapped. But uh, no, I've not communicated with the White House on that. That was Democratic Senator Dick Durbin speaking to CNN's Poppy Harlow. So, Alex, why has this issue become so politically charged and so complex? Well, because there's a war going on. And um, and whenever you have a war going on, especially when you have, especially on the left, there is a significant part of the left that is sympathetic uh, or at least more sympathetic to the Palestinian side, and you have a significant part of the left that is sympathetic to the Israeli side. And I think um, even though Senator Durbin did call, you know, use the the C word, you know, ceasefire, um, you know, he did add that nuance, that extra thing where he said, well, as long as all the hostages, he's not calling what a lot of people on the left are calling for, which is just an unconditional ceasefire. And it's just it is very interesting to see uh, this talk of, and there's some machinations over language here. So uh, there's the ceasefire language and there's the pause language. Now, there really isn't, to my mind, really an, a meaningful difference. But the White House has been very, very clear that there is a huge difference between a pause 
and a ceasefire. And um, I think you're going to increasingly see members of Congress, uh, people on the Democratic Party, call for an unconditional ceasefire, especially as the fighting escalates in this next week or two. Well, Anita, President Joe Biden has talked about Israel's right and responsibility to defend itself. uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu says that calling for a ceasefire is akin to asking his country to surrender to terrorists. So in a fraught moment like this, is there a role for the U.S. to play in calling for a truce or a humanitarian pause or something else? And would Israel listen? Yeah, I think exactly what you said is why we're seeing the president not say ceasefire, right? Humanitarian pause is what he's focused on, as Alex mentioned, because he's trying to balance, uh, you know, the right, what he said is the right for Israel to defend itself, what he said publicly, but also to put in, get some humanitarian aid in there, uh, get some hostages out and really take a minute, take a breath to be able to do that. So he's threading that needle very carefully. And I think his role is going to be what his role has been throughout these last few weeks, which is he's going to publicly say some things. He's going to talk about his support for Israel and the United States' support, but he's going to privately urge the prime minister to act in a certain way. And, you know, we've seen what some say is some some effects of that conversation, right? The, the president has been very vocal about Israel's rights, but also uh, the the administration has been privately saying, look, let's, you know, you should, you should tread carefully. It shouldn't be as, uh, you know, a full throttle offensive. You should do certain things. And they feel like they've had some uh, results with that. So I think you'll see them doing private and public uh, speaking to Israel. A great illustration of the semantics involved here is in a quote that Dick Durbin gave to my colleague Igor Babak yesterday. He said he's calling for a humanitarian pause, which is the equivalent to a temporary ceasefire. Hmm. So make of that what you will. Exactly. Parsing words very carefully and understandably for all the political fraught um, atmosphere and, you know, the very real pain on the ground on both sides. In the meantime, there's a fight among Republicans over what aid to send overseas and to whom. The new Republican House Speaker wants to move quickly to send funds to Israel, but he doesn't want to send them to Ukraine. And where the planned money comes from is proving controversial. Here's House Speaker Mike Johnson talking to Fox News on Tuesday. My intention and my desire in the first draft of this bill is to take some of the money that has been set aside building and bulking up the IRS right now. They have about $67 billion in that fund, and we'll, we'll try to take the 14.5 necessary for this immediate and urgent need. Do you have any sense on how united the Republican conference is on this front? Well, the Republican conference is 100% united, and I hope the Democrats will be as well. well I believe Massey said he wouldn't, he wouldn't vote for it. I just texted him before we sat down and okay. said, we've got to have a talk. Uh, but we have to we have to figure this out. So, Arthur, where does this plan stand right now? How united are the Republicans on this? When he says Republican conference, he means Republicans in the House of Representatives. He didn't get Massey, but they're they are otherwise very united. And Senate Republicans do not agree with this plan. This is a plan that is dead on arrival in the Senate, and it augurs poorly, I would add, for government funding in the future because. He describes, we're just going to take this money that's lying around at the IRS as if this is not an explosive political problem that he's creating. It's money that you can't even use to pay for something according to the Congressional Budget Office because the IRS will then be less able to collect taxes 
from rich people. So he's saying we've got to help Israel, and he's pairing it with a tax, what is essentially a tax cut for the rich. It's not going to fly, and he knows it. And the next steps for this are totally unclear. So my next question for you, Arthur, was, but maybe you've answered it, was why take the money from the IRS? It sounds like you're saying it's a sort of poorly disguised ploy to give a free tax break to the rich. This is a good question. It is a poorly disguised ploy uh, also to bolster Johnson with the same right-wing faction that threw out his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy. It is, as some people describe it, red meat for the base. And the reason it is is that Republicans are always saying the IRS is a boogeyman. The IRS is going to kick your door in and audit you. The IRS is mean to Donald Trump. They hate the IRS. And there is also this uh, ideological policy uh, component where they want the, the IRS to collect less taxes. And this isn't a tax cut, but it's the equivalent of a tax cut because they, the, they do estimate that it reduces tax revenue by uh, much more than the amount of money that they would actually take away from the IRS. So it's a double whammy of deficit increase. Well, senators from both parties have been lining up to make really clear that any plan that strips out aid to Ukraine will not pass in the upper chamber. I think all of these conflicts have to be dealt with strongly and they should be dealt with together. Senator Schumer and I are in the same place in the sense that we view all of these problems as connected. Look, the bottom line is it's not a serious proposal. That was Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, followed by Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Alex, House Speaker Johnson told Fox News last week that the U.S. should not abandon Ukraine to Putin. But how is he going to satisfy both the old school Republicans who believe in strong U.S. leadership overseas and being tough against Russia and the more isolationist MAGA wing of the party that is oddly friendly with or admiring of Putin, including former President Trump himself? Well, you can say we aren't going to abandon Ukraine, but what that actually means in practice, I mean, you could send them, you know, a million dollars and be like, well, we didn't abandon them, right? Uh, And that's really sort of the nuances of this conversation. Now, Mike Johnson's view is that these conflicts are separate. And part of the reason for that is because his entire conference is very divided on Ukraine. Now, you've seen voters, especially on the right, uh, become increasingly skeptical of sending more and more money to Ukraine. And his and, and so his view is you have to separate uh, the these two. Israel and Ukraine are not related. Um, now, what uh, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden realize is that it is unlikely that they are going to get a significant amount of money for Ukraine unless it is packaged on top of the Israel funding, which is why they are insisting that the package be, uh, you know, be combined. Now, the other thing that Mike Johnson is trying to do now is saying, OK, I will give you money for Ukraine, but then you have to give us a bunch of money for border enforcement and for other things that have to do with immigration. So uh, there are a lot of very complicated politics going on here. And to your point, Mike Johnson, what Arthur was saying is true, is that Mike Johnson's early moves are to say, I am different than Kevin McCarthy. I and really shore up his support with the right wing of his conference. But it will be interesting to see, does he start moving to the middle as things progress? Hmm. We're going to head into a quick break here, but we'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation. So as the war between Israel and Hamas enters its second month, tensions are flaring on U.S. soil as well. The FBI says there's been an uptick in threats across the U.S. against Jewish and Muslim communities. In October, a man fatally stabbed a six-year-old Palestinian-American in Illinois and also brutally attacked his mother with a knife. This week, the FBI announced they'd arrested a Las Vegas man accused of making threats against Jewish Senator Jackie Rosen. Nevada Senator Rosen spoke with CBS on Thursday morning. When you get threats like this, threatening you because of your race, religion, ethnicity, uh, anti-Semitic threats like this gentleman was doing against me, it really... um, It really upsets you, and it didn't hit me until my daughter saw it. And when she called me crying, thinking that something was going to happen to me, that someone threatened my life, I Mm -hmm. saw it not as a senator but as a mother. And that is when it really hit home to me that something bad could happen. But this is part of the reason I'm here today, because this is happening all across America. What's happened to me in a public space is happening on college campuses. It's happening in houses of worship everywhere. Anita, what have officials said about the uptick in threats since the war started? Yeah, they're saying, I mean, we are seeing uh, threats uh, all over the place. You've mentioned colleges. Uh, There was a very high-profile case where a Cornell University student was accused of posting violently threatening statements that really rattled that particular campus. So we're seeing things, you know, sort of all over the place and really calls for lawmakers and and public officials, including the president of the United States, to do more. And it's a very difficult thing uh, to do more, right? Because uh, these a lot of these instances are in local communities or on college campuses or in towns and cities all over the country. And it's very difficult to have sort of, a, a, you know, a nationwide response. But we are seeing a lot of rhetoric from the White House, um, from uh, the attorney general, from various people saying, you know, some of this stuff is just is unacceptable and we have to do better and we have to do more, but it's a very difficult thing to get a handle on. Yeah, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, told a U.S. Senate panel um, that the threat um, and anti-Semitism is reaching in some ways historic levels. He said, our statistics indicate that for a group that represents only about 2.4 percent of the American public, 
Um, Jews are accounting for something like 60 percent of all religious-based hate crimes in terms of being the victims thereof. Arthur, as Anita said, in New York, a 21-year-old student is in jail now after officials say he made threats against Jewish classmates at Cornell. Tell us a bit more about what happened. I think this is an important story because it shows you how uh, international news about this conflict can cause uh, people to lose it here in the United States, even though they seem to have no, even if they seem to have no direct connection to it. This is a Cornell student named Patrick Dye, uh, 21 years old, an engineering student uh, who just started making these threats online. And uh, the, the FBI found out where he lived and went and arrested him. Uh, they were really scary threats. He talked about bringing an assault rifle to campus and, uh, and targeting a place where uh, Jewish students would be. And uh, I, it's, it's actually remarkable. The New York Post interviewed his parents, and they said he had fallen into a deep depression. And shortly before he was arrested, you know, he had been out of touch with his parents for a few days, and his mother knew something was wrong, and drove 80 miles to get there and arrived just in time to see all the police mm. outside his apartment. Uh, they, the story says he's a National Merit Scholar who was uh, in all kinds of advanced AP classes in high school. It's, something just went wrong, and, uh, and he was known to be having um, some emotional or mental problems and, mm-hmm. and lost it over this news. So, Alex, explain to us why the tensions are so pronounced on college campuses. I mean, we know from several weeks ago that at Harvard there was that letter that was um, signed on behalf of a bunch of solidarity groups um, at, you know, at Brown. At many universities, there have been tensions. University of Pennsylvania president has come under pressure. Why is it such a flashpoint on college campuses? Well, because – there's a tremendous energy um, for you know the pro-Palestinian side, or at least Palestinian sympathetic side, much more so. Um, and there that had already that had already been taking place before this conflict. That there was this feeling, you know, you heard the terms that it was an apartheid situation would come up uh, uh, would come up a lot. They would call it the occupation. You know, there was already this this uh, increased sympathy and. And feeling that, um, you know, in some ways, the Palestinian cause, there were some parallels with cause of oppressed people in the United States. And you, you and this conflict then happens. And immediately that, that reflexive, I mean, like the, the Harvard letter that you're talking about, that was immediately after uh, October 7th. And the thing is that in recent years, university presidents have been deferential to the social justice causes on college campuses and have stood in solidarity. But in this case, a lot of the people that fund the universities, a lot of people, a lot of Jewish students at these universities did not share those feelings. And as a result, you you are seeing, you know, a really combustible thing. And, and it's now leaving college campuses too. I mean, the, the, the Cornell case, I agree with Arthur, is just this tremendous story. But the, the truth is that as the longer this war goes on, the more this is going to escalate everywhere, both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And it's just going to con- continue to, to escalate. 
Well, you're right. And I think even that letter on Harvard did not represent the views of all the students who it purported to to represent because it wasn't approved by all the people who were supposedly signed to it. But you make an excellent point that it spread beyond campuses. Anita, let me ask you, across the U.S., posters with faces of hostages held by Hamas are being pulled down in protest from a sidewalk in New York to campuses in Boston and San Diego. Who is behind these posters popping up around the country and being ripped down? Yeah, they, as you mentioned, they are popping up in big cities, cities all over the place, sort of the place you would might see something's for sale or people are gathering together. Um, these flyers are being put up, some of them by Israeli street artists, by different people. These are things that you could find um, on a computer, just on the internet. You can print it out and people have been putting them up all over the place. And you did mention uh, campuses is one of those places, but we're back to the back to the colleges. So what's been happening lately is as these are going up, um, talking about the hostages, you've seen a variety of people taking them down, and uh, some of those people have been caught on uh, video, or you know we've seen them on Instagram or social media where you know these these people that are taking them down, some of them have been really called out. I mean, there are photos there, some of them by name um, have been called out, and. You know, I suppose we don't know exactly why every single person is taking them down, but um, there are some that say they're being taken down because they are sort of protesting the Israeli government's mistreatment of Palestinians over the years, so before October 7th, and even since the bombing began on October 7th. So that's their, you know, the posters might be a form, a little bit of a form of protest, and taking them down might be a form of protest, and it's really sort of taking off this back and forth um, you know, really kind of showing the divide that we've been talking about, that even these posters, even of hostages, has become so divisive in this country. Mm. Arthur, the White House is now demanding an apology from conservative TV host Jesse Waters. During a segment about these posters that Anita's talking about on Fox News, Waters went into a rant against Arab Americans, which we're not going to play for you, what have Fox and Waters said about that rant and the demand for an apology? I am aware of the demand for apology. I don't know what Waters' response has been, except I suspect that he did not apologize. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But um, he wasn't on the five yesterday. They said he had a pre-planned speech in California. Yeah, I, I read I read a transcript of what he said, and his and it's like, listen up, Arab Americans. And then he talks about U.S. involvement in the middle of, in the Middle East and says, we've had it, we've had it with you. And it's uh, it, it's just obviously an incredibly inflammatory statement, and it's became the centerpiece of the White House's uh, message this week, which was that they're promulgating a new uh, new national strategy to combat uh, Islamophobia. And uh, so you know they haven't created the strategy yet, but they announced that they're working on it, and I think it's it's clear that they want to move past their initial response to the Israel-Gaza war when they when they said that calls for a ceasefire were repugnant. People so, Yeah, a a Alex mentioned this strategy to combat Islamophobia. Alex, um tell us a bit more about what Arthur mentioned. Well, and, and this is I mean to what Arthur's point is that the the White House is sort of racing to catch up by being so closely aligned with Israel in complete solidarity Early on, um, there is a feeling among Muslim uh, Muslim leaders in the United States that the administration does not have 
any actual credibility um, on when they are announcing these uh, Islamophobia steps. And that message was conveyed to the White House by Muslim leaders last week in a meeting um, that they had on Friday. Now, it was interesting. The White House did not advertise the meeting was taking place in the same way they advertised that a meeting with Jewish leaders the week before had taken place. The The White House is really struggling to sort of, you know, get its hands around this, which is why you saw them roll out this announcement of a anti-Islamophobia strategy that is coming at some point. Um, but I think the fact of the matter is that, it, you know, it, the big picture here is the despite what the White House is going to say, the thing that is driving the Islamophobia and anti-Semitism is the war. And as long and, and as it continues to, you know, potentially escalate with the involvement of Hezbollah, Houthi rebels, potentially Iran, as it continues to escalate, that that I'm not sure what any sort of initiative uh, will have, uh, you know, what effect it actually will have. Well, Anita, that's a really good point that Alex brings up. You know, I want to ask you, how are American Muslims responding to this new, quote unquote, strategy to combat Islamophobia? I saw a poll this week that um, Arab American support for President Biden had dropped by double digits. And so I wonder to what extent bridges have been burned with Arab Americans because they're not, you know, they're seeing the administration as shoulder to shoulder with Israel. And I don't know how sincere do they think this strategy is. Yeah, I mean, I will just point out that it's actually not a strategy yet. It's sort of a working group um, that's bringing together lawmakers, you know, advocacy groups, community leaders with the administration to come up with something. So, you know, some people might argue, well, they're they're already behind, right? Um, they there's been some frustration that they uh, about the rhetoric that's come out the last month, but now here they are trying to put together something now to come up with a strategy. So I think you're exactly right, and Alex is right that there's so much frustration. Uh, there feels a lot of people feeling like, you know, look, we've seen what's been happening the last month. We haven't seen what we want to, we haven't heard what we want to hear. We haven't seen what we want to see. And now here they're trying to do this, um, you know, maybe not at the last minute, we're a month in, but they don't even actually have a plan. Um, I, I think there was some reporting by the Associated Press that actually they were going to unveil the working group earlier and had to postpone it a, a few days just to get a handle on some of this frustration that's out there. So they are really feeling this at the White House and trying to trying to figure out, you know, sort of what the next step is. We have a couple of messages from listeners. Rose writes, I think tensions are high because there's literally a genocide going on against the Palestinians for decades. And when people don't recognize that, people become angry. Charlie wrote to us regarding college students. It's because the kids have been indoctrinated to believe that Israel is an oppressor. A reminder, we're speaking with Anita Kumar from Politico, Alex Thompson from Axios, and Arthur Delaney from HuffPost. Let's move on to the latest news out of former President Donald Trump's fraud trial in New York. The case brought by Attorney General Letitia James claims that Trump and his children knowingly inflated their family company's assets. In a post on social media attacking the judge and the New York Attorney General, Donald Trump wrote in part, quote, the banks and insurance companies were paid in full, no defaults. They all made money. There is no victim except me. Leave my children alone, Engeron. You're a disgrace to the legal profession, end quote. Engeron is the judge in the former president's fraud trial. Alex, last week, Judge Engeron fined 
Donald Trump $10,000 for violating a gag order for a second time. How could these latest comments outside of the court affect his case? Uh, the ju- it has been fascinating to watch because the judge clearly has no patience with with Trump and some of these you know rhetorical games. Now Trump, you know, one of those comments that prompted the fine, Trump, you know, said the person, the judge, and the person next to him have it out for me. And then when the judge brought him to the stand, Trump said, "Oh, I wasn't talking about your law clerk. I was talking about Michael Cohen." Even though the law clerk is the one standing sitting right next to him, and then the judge was like, "I don't believe you." Um, and it was like, I'm finding you away. And that was the first time you saw Trump on the stand. Now, Trump is expected to come on the stand again next week. But um, it, it has been also very interesting to me that Trump has insisted on attending the trial. He, you know, very much throughout, um, you know, this is about it's a civil case. So it's about, you know, his business empire. But he doesn't have he has not had to be there many of the days that he's attended. Um, you know, there could be political upside to, uh, you know, he has clearly enjoy you know, positioned himself as a martyr of the judicial system. And it has you know, rebounded to his political benefit in the GOP primary. But but, you know, it's interesting that he is going and attending the trial rather than going out to Iowa. Yeah, it's, mm. a, it's the Trump witch hunt. He's got to be there for the witch trial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And briefly, Arthur, with the time we have before the break, three of Trump's children, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka, were executive vice presidents at the Trump organization. Um, and, you know, his comments came right before his children took the stand. Um, you know, we I, I'd love to hear from you about um, how Don Jr. answered several questions with I don't recall. <laughs> Tell us briefly, what did we learn from his time on the stand? That's it. They, they've already found that there was fraud and manipulation. And so the Trump kids said, I didn't do it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to head to a quick break. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. So 2023 is an odd one for an election year. 
at least, but a few key races are drawing national attention. Next Tuesday will be the last day for voters in a handful of states to cast their ballots. In Ohio, voters are deciding whether to establish a constitutional right to abortion. It's the only abortion question on any state's ballot this year. I just think the majority of Ohioans think that abortion should not be allowed. Anti-abortion politicians have been trying to ban abortion and mislead voters for over a decade. And what we're hearing now is more of the same. That was Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine, followed by Lauren Blovold with Planned Parenthood Advocates of Ohio. Anita, how is Ohio a bellwether when it comes to the abortion issue in the 2024 election? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, this was the only this is the only abortion question on any state ballot this year. So we've got a lot of people on both sides of this issue really looking at Ohio to see what's what's happening there. You know, Democrats really hope that next year up and down the ballot, so presidential race and other races around the country are, uh, you know, that the abortion issue is really going to energize Democrats to get out and vote and vote for uh, their candidates. And so they're really putting a lot on this. They're really watching Ohio to see what happens. Um, You have seen, though, that there's some confusion a little bit um, on the ground there about what the which way people should be voting, um, what it exactly means. There's uh, been allegations of misinformation that's been put out there by Republicans and Democrats are kind of going back and forth on this. So uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty how this is going to come out. But since uh, the Supreme Court weighed in on Dobbs, which really overturned uh, Roe v. Wade, we've seen voters in six other states um, go to the polls on this, and they have supported measures protecting abortion rights or rejecting efforts aimed at eroding access. So there are Democrats that hope that this is going to be the next state and that this will go into next year and that there will be some energy behind uh, Mm -hmm. this issue. Mm -hmm. Another abortion-related story that's making headlines this week comes out of Idaho. Prosecutors there charged a mother and son with second-degree kidnapping for allegedly taking a 15-year-old girl to receive an abortion in Oregon. The girl told authorities she began a consensual relationship with the woman's son when he was 17. He has since turned 18. And the mother says the abortion was, quote, mutually agreed upon. But abortion is banned in Idaho with few exceptions. And the state recently made it illegal to help a minor obtain an abortion without parental consent. Alex, prosecutors say that the mother and the son aren't being charged under the so-called abortion trafficking law. So how is this a test case for similar restrictions um, against traveling to receive an abortion? Well, the details of, these ca- of, of this case are incredibly messy. The mother of the daughter claimed that there was sexual assault involved. He is being, you know, tra- like a- accused of rape because he is eighteen. Um, uh, you know, she was supposed to be living with her dad, but was living with the the, the kids. So the the details of this case are a bit messy, but the the important point to your question is that Idaho has is perhaps the most restrictive state in the entire country when it comes to abortion. Um, and part of the reason they did not I, – I'm assuming that they did not 
uh, charge under the the law that was passed in April. Now, that law basically makes it illegal to transport any minor across state lines in order to have an abortion in Idaho. That often happens in Oregon, which is um, or Washington, which is right next door. Um, that is being currently challenged and going through the courts. Same with their, you know, the so-called trigger law that essentially made abortion illegal right after Do- uh, right after Dobbs. That is also going through the courts, and that was actually temporarily stayed in October. The the bigger point, though, is that all of these laws, you you are seeing just sort of an epic legal clash. Um, on the local level, on the state level, on the national level, when it comes to abortion rights. And because of that, it is not going to go away before 2024, which is why you are seeing Democrats uh, try to get ballot initiatives similar to what's happening in Ohio. You are trying to see them get ballot initiatives in Nevada, in Arizona, in Florida, which all happen to be presidential swing states in order to make sure that uh, to motivate Democrats who may otherwise may not be as excited about Joe Biden but come out for that abortion referendum and then still pull the lever for Joe Biden, too. Hmm. All right. Well, let's jump ahead to 2024. And there's some recent polling news that may come as a surprise. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running as an independent candidate for president, despite being a prominent member of perhaps the most famous Democratic political family dynasty. This week, he's polling at 22 percent. That's in a hypothetical three-way race against President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, according to a Quinnipiac University survey released this week. So RFK has said he's running as a spoiler. In an October speech in Philadelphia, he said, quote, my intention is to spoil it for both of them. With these surprisingly big numbers, how big of a threat could he be to Biden's reelection bid, Arthur, or to Trump's challenge? I honestly am not sure. It does seem to be a mutual threat to them both based on the types of voters that he appeals to. And, the, you know, I want to be a spoiler language that he's using is probably very inflammatory to the D.C. political class. Uh, What he means there is saying, I'm going to take on the swamp, which is also kind of standard uh, anti-establishment political rhetoric. But, but, you know, whether he actually screws it up for for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, I, I do not know. There is this fascinating thing, you know, right wing media, conservative media have been, you know, talking about RFK Jr. and giving him almost fawning coverage for months when he was running against Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. But since he's become an independent, what they have done is they've driven up his positive numbers with Republicans. And now he's running as independent. And actually, he could hurt Donald Trump more than he hurts Joe Biden. Incredible. Well, of the 2024 election, former Vice President Mike Pence had this to say last Saturday. The Bible tells us that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And traveling across the country over the past six months, I came here to say it's become clear to me, this is not my time. So after much prayer and deliberation, I have decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. So, Alex, let's simplify that down to the politics behind that answer or behind his motivation. Why did Pence drop out? Because he wasn't going to win and he was out of money. Um, the The last quarterly report showed that he'd already loaned his campaign $100,000 and had maybe $200,000 cash left on hand. Presidential campaigns don't end. They run out of money. And the fact of the matter is that his campaign ended actually on January 6th. 
be when he decided not to send, you know, reject the electors and send it to the House representatives. There was a significant part of the Republican Party that was never going to vote for him. And it's, you know, and, and that's just where he's at. And another part that wanted to hang him. Yeah, it's true. So Pence has dropped out, but it appears Congressman George Santos is clinging on to his piece of the political pie. The Republican representative from New York survived a floor vote to expel him from Congress on Wednesday. I'm fighting tooth and nail to clear my name in front of the entire world, Mr. Speaker. It hasn't been easy, but I'm fighting by God's grace. Ever since his election in 2022, Santos has drawn criticism for embellishing and fabricating much of his resume. He now faces criminal charges for wire fraud, identity theft, and lying to federal election officials. Anita, tell us who led this push to expel Santos? It was actually New York Republicans. So Republicans, people of the same party who feel like it's it's a bad reflection on them and they've kind of had enough. But we saw the writing on the wall. This was not going to happen. He was not going to be uh, expelled at least this time around. And we knew that from a cup for a couple reasons. One, the new Speaker of the House had said, no, this is too early. Uh, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. We need to see what happens both in court, but also what happens with a House Ethics Committee, uh, which is going on right now. And it, it sounds like it's quite uh, extensive with a lot of witnesses and, and other things. And so also we saw some others, uh, you know, across the board in the House saying, let's just wait until this is over. And that's normally how it's done, right? In the House, it would be uh, unusual for them to act before the ethics investigation or before the court um, has has gone through this trial. So didn't expect anything differently, but you did sort of see that divide with the New York Republicans versus most of the rest of, of uh, House members. Arthur, the final vote was 179 to 213. 24 GOP members sided with 155 Democrats to support the expulsion of George Santos. So why in the end did it fail? Well, Democrats didn't like the idea, like Anita said, of expelling a guy who's been indicted and who's clearly a big fraud but hasn't been convicted. It's not fair to the people who elected him is their view of things. And, I mean, that vote was not close. That was not even a majority. You would have needed two-thirds. The only reason a vote like that even happened is that the New York Republicans used a privileged motion that forced the House to hold the vote. Typically, if something's got no chance, they don't even bother. Um, Let me ask you, Alex, what other elections are you watching closely next week as the results start to roll in? You know, I, I, I got to be honest that the, we already talked about it, but the Ohio abortion one is the most interesting. I'll give a different angle because Anita covered it so well before is that um, J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, who, uh, you know, has been rumored to have presidential ambitions. He has invested over a million dollars of his own money. He has uh, sent out some of his own political staff to join the executive committee of this initiative. If it succeeds... Um, I expect you're going to see him. He is a billionaire. I'm. I think you're going to you're going to see him spend millions of more dollars um, on such referendums, and I think that's going to bolster his national profile on the on the issue of abortion rights. Aside from the elections next week, the other big news that's coming domestically is that both Donald Trump and his daughter Ivanka are going to take the stand in this fraud case in New York. 
Anita, tell us, what are you expecting from their testimonies? Obviously, people are going to be watching it, um, not just for politics, but the family drama. Is Ivanka going to break with her father? She's been so close to him all along, but of course, she wants to save her skin. Um, what? Wh- how do you see that playing out? It's a, it's a legal case, but it's also a bit of a soap opera. Right. I mean, we saw the two sons, Don Jr. and two of the sons, I should say, Don Jr. and Eric testify and they this week and they really pushed back on, you know, sort of saying they didn't really know anything, even though they're the ones that have been running the company. I think she's going to say, look, I got out of the business. Uh, You know, she was involved, but then she went to the White House with her dad. She's going to say, look, I shouldn't even be here. And I think she's already made that argument. Uh, You know, we have... We don't know what else she's going to say. I think Donald Trump is going to go over there and say what he always says. Um, He's going to play to the cameras afterwards uh, like he has done when he's appeared in court. He's going to use this as a partly uh, political campaign. He's not in Iowa. He's not somewhere else campaigning. He's going to show up there and use that moment for himself to try to get some attention, to say, again, it's a witch hunt, uh, to get some media attention after it's over. Uh, You know, I think out of all the family members, Ivanka Trump, as you mentioned, is probably the most, the one we don't really know what she's going to do and what she's going to say. She's played a different role um, in the business and with her father at the White House uh, than the others. And and it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. I want to ask each of you briefly before we leave, what is, what are you watching next week? What's in your reporter's notebook and what's the story you want to highlight? I'll be on Capitol Hill to find out what's going to happen with the new speaker and funding the government or letting the government shut down next uh, this month. What about you, Alex? Uh, the Republican debate, the third one, is going to be next week, and Trump is also counter-programming with a rally. Um, I would expect you're going to see DeSantis and Nikki Haley duke it out as uh, people try to sort of climb over each other in order to place themselves as the main alternative to Donald Trump. Quick last word, Anita. Yes, definitely the debate. Uh, You know, Nikki Haley has been rising in the polls and and her debate performance in the first two debates uh, was perceived as pretty good. So I'll be seeing how how she comes in the third one. Anita Kumar from Politico, Alex Thompson from Axios, and Arthur Delaney from HuffPost, thank you so much. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, we remember actor Matthew Perry, who died this week in L.A., You know how people say that Tulsa (laughs) is the Paris of Oklahoma? What? Who says that? People who have never been to Paris. While many fans will remember Perry for his role as Chandler Bing on the sitcom Friends, his body of work was extensive. He had roles on primetime shows such as Ally McBeal, The West Wing, and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. He also worked in films, including Fool's Rush In and The Whole Nine Yards. Perry's 2022 memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, discussed his decades-long struggle with substance abuse and his recovery efforts, which resonated with many. Readers celebrated and appreciated the honesty of his memoir. It's really exciting that people will read this story and It'll hopefully help a lot of people. Yeah, what's the biggest thing you hope people get out of it? Uh, well, um, that they learn that the disease doesn't, doesn't care where it goes, you know. It, people, there's a, uh, 
stigma attached to it, and that's got to end. And hopefully me telling my story will help that stigma end. Celebrities and fans took to social media to pay tribute to Perry this week, including his friend's co-stars who shared, We are all so utterly devastated by the loss of Matthew. We were more than just castmates. We are a family. Matthew Perry was 54. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. Coming up, the latest on the situation in Gaza. There has been limited aid crossing into the besieged enclave, and some Palestinians have been asked to leave. The Biden administration is calling for a, quote, pause in the conflict to get hostages out. But what would that mean for people still in Gaza? We'll check in on AI safety, a summit held in the UK this week, and we'll look at why Afghan refugees are being told to leave Pakistan. Our expert panel includes Emily Tampkin, reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Thanks for being here, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Elise Labatt is founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi News. Welcome back, Elise. Good to be with you, Indira. And Joyce Karam is senior news editor at Al Monitor. She writes the China Middle East briefing newsletter. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Indira. So I want to start this hour with a speech by Hassan Nasrallah, the secretary general of Lebanon's Hezbollah group, who spoke for the first time since the war between Israel and Hamas began. Here's a little bit of that speech. Speaking of responsibility, it is the responsibility of every free nobleman in this world. Everyone, all and each, should shoulder his own. Arab and Muslim states must spare no effort to at least put an end to the war. If you are prevented from acting, listen to your religion, your conscience, your values. You should all work for the top prime goal to end. Condemnation statements are not enough. So that was Hassan Nasrallah, Secretary General of the Lebanon-based militant group Hezbollah, speaking from an undisclosed location. He has not spoken publicly in person since 2006, when there was a month-long war between Lebanon and Israel. 
So obviously a very big deal for him to speak again um, so many years later. Joyce, he stopped short of announcing that Hezbollah would engage in the fighting. But what were some of the main points that Nasrullah brought up in his speech? Uh, Exactly, Indira. This was a very uh, ambiguous speech when it comes to Hezbollah's engagement in the conflict. We know there's already uh, clashes on the Lebanon-Israel border, but Hezbollah stopped short of uh, declaring uh, that he will uh, directly enter uh, the war. So that's uh, significant because there were heightened fears that uh, Lebanon would be dragged into uh, the war. He was very tactical uh, in, in saying uh, they did not uh, operationally help Hamas in, in the October uh, 7 uh, attack and tried to keep distance from the uh, civilian uh, death toll, saying some of it was uh, in the Israeli uh, crossfire uh, w- with Hamas. This is an important distriction, a distinction because, again, he's trying to shield Lebanon a little bit from uh, the aftermath. At the same time, it tells you, you mentioned the 2006 war, how much has changed um, in Hezbollah's uh, regional uh, reach and power. Uh, Hezbollah talked about his allies in, in Iraq uh, that launched attacks against uh, American bases. He uh, full-heartedly endorsed uh, these attacks. Uh, he also brought up the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, this is a very changed dynamic than the one uh, we've seen in 2006, where Hezbollah was not yet involved in Syria, not to this extent in Iraq, and not to this extent in uh, Yemen. For now, he is leaving Nasrallah left all options open, uh, but it was clear he's favoring an end uh, to the conflict if possible. But if there were to be an escalation, he's ready to step in. Emily, on Friday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Tel Aviv. He pressed for more humanitarian aid to be allowed into besieged Gaza, and he reaffirmed support for Israel. He spoke to reporters after meeting with Israeli leaders. We've been clear that as Israel conducts this campaign to defeat Hamas, how it does so matters. It matters because it's the right and lawful thing to do. It matters because Failure to do so plays into the hands of Hamas and other terror groups. There will be no partners for peace if they're consumed by humanitarian catastrophe and alienated by any perceived indifference to their plight. According to the Hamas-run Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza, more than 9,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed since um, Israel's counterattack began, almost all of them children. Hamas continues to hold more than 200 hostages, Israelis, since their surprise attack on Israel. Blinken's visit to the region comes while Israeli troops tightened their encirclement of Gaza City and the city is the focus of Israel's campaign to to crush the enclave's ruling Hamas group. Emily, tell us more. I think when this war began, you know, there were reports of sort of the public bear hug between the United States and Israel and private criticism and private um, sort of uh, requests that, that Israel spare civilians and let in humanitarian aid and so forth. And I think what you're seeing is these two tactics merging because Israel has, because civilian lives have not been spared and because there have been reports of 
I mean, not just reports, we know that people have not been able to access food or water, that there has been, been fuel, sufficient fuel to keep just basic necessities running. Um, and so this is Blinken's third trip to Israel since this has started. And, and we're hearing sort of more public American, I wouldn't even call it pressure. It's, it's, it's not quite pressure. It's too light to be considered that. But, but sort of public reminders um, of the purported values that are behind this, right, which are human dignity and, and, and respecting civilian lives, et cetera. Um, there are reports that the United States is becoming increasingly concerned about the number of civilian deaths. Um, I think there are some here and certainly in Gaza who would say that's too little too late. Um, and I, 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 one wonders in future visits what message Blinken can give that's not just, oh, please be more careful in your, in your targeting. Please stop killing so many civilians. Please allow them to have more aid. Like how, at, at what point does that message become unsustainable in light of the facts on the ground? Um, joining us now also is Tamara Al-Rafai from Amman, Jordan. She's the spokesperson with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, better known as UNRWA. She joins us from Amman, Jordan. Um, Tamara, thank you for joining us. And um, I'd like to hear from you. UNRWA schools are being used as shelters. What are the conditions like there? The conditions are very, very difficult. I can even say appalling. Overcrowding, lack of access to clean water, lack of access to food, lack of access to uh, basic necessities that uh, constitute dignified living. We're talking about nearly 700,000 people in 150 UNRWA schools turned shelters. Most of the people in our shelters were displaced from the north. They came with very little on them. And we've all seen the uh, trickle of humanitarian assistance, also known as the famous trucks that are coming in from Egypt, on average 20 trucks per day. This is barely, barely sufficient. It's not sufficient at all, actually, in the face of the needs of all these displaced people. Hmm. And Tamara, you have also lost more than 70 UNRWA colleagues who work for the UN since the war began almost four weeks ago. We're sorry for your loss, and I want to know how has this affected the work of UNRWA when you're supposed to be helping, you know, a much larger group of refugees, but you're facing your own losses? Yes, that's exactly it. We are shocked and we are in mourning. In fact, the number has gone up to 72 already yesterday, and every day we count more. Our people, our staff, my colleagues um, are part of the Gaza community. So most of our 13,000 UNRWA staff in Gaza are themselves from Gaza and from the group that is um, uh, re uh, Palestine refugees. Just for context, the Gaza Strip houses, housed 2.2 million people. Of these, 1.7 million are Palestine refugees. These are descendants of people who were expelled or fled in 1948 from mandated Palestine or from today's Israel. Their descendants live in Gaza and are still considered Palestine refugees. We have um, some tape of a resident of Gaza's town of Khan Yunus named Abu Muhammad al-Satari, who spoke with my colleagues at the AP. We stand in line to get bread for a day, two or three, and we don't get the chance to have one pack of bread. 
There's also no water. We don't have water. There's no drinkable water and no water for showers. Diseases are spreading in Khan Yunus. Skin diseases, infectious diseases, diarrhea. Our conditions have become very, very dire. So, Tamara, let me ask you, with, with those conditions are the way that they've been described, um, is aid getting to the people who need it most, and what are the most critical needs? The most critical needs are food, clean drinking water, medicines, and mostly fuel. Fuel has not come into Gaza since the beginning, since before this conflict. Whatever is coming into Gaza is really, really insufficient. 20 trucks per day is nothing. Before this conflict, 500 trucks of supplies used to come into Gaza every day. That's Tamara Al-Rafai. She's a spokesperson with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, better known as UNRWA. She joins us from Amman, Jordan. Thanks for speaking with us. Israeli attacks on a refugee camp in Gaza have killed at least 50 people and injured hundreds more, according to Palestinian officials. Israel's army unleashed days of airstrikes on the refugee camp. They say that the strikes killed two Hamas leaders. A Hamas spokesperson said that no senior officials were killed in the attack and that only civilians were affected. Elise, can you tell us more about what is happening with Israeli ground operations right now in Gaza City? and this refugee camp attack? Well, well, on the refugee camp, as you said, they you know, bombed the refugee camp as a way of going after um, Hamas command and control, which they believe is underneath in these tunnels um, below these very sophisticated tunnels. And they're going after the leaders, um, Nassim Abu Anjina, who they identified as the commander of a Hamas combat battalion, who also directed the massacre. And then um, another one who was basically um, the, the kind of mastermind of it. Uh, the, the military objective right now is to isolate Gaza City, which has been the seat of the, of the power, of Hamas's power, of the Gaza Strip. And, you know, as part of their overall vow to destroy Hamas. So right now they've been carrying out these targeted strikes aimed at killing out all the leaders. Then the ground forces are coming in after they've shaped the battlefield and going after, you know, in, in hand-to-hand combat. It, look, Indira, um, whether the um, commanders were actually there at the time or, um, you know, the, these Hamas, as everyone said, that Hamas is using civilians as uh, human shields, I don't think there's any question that this refugee camp is one of the most densely populated on the Gaza Strip, areas of the Gaza Strip, which is the Gaza Strip is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. And so the propensity to have civilian casualties was not surprising. I think one of the concerns we've been talking about is that, you know, the U.S. has come to realize that Israel feels that, you know, mass casualties are an acceptable price of this war. And it's drawing so much international condemnation. And even the United States now is starting to speak louder about you know, bombing these densely populated areas. They understand that Hamas is using human shields. But, you know, the suggestion is that doesn't necessarily justify, you know, and this is the part of the balance that we've been talking about is the need to go after Hamas 
with the need to protect civilians. And certainly in this bombing, I think Israel was pretty clear that, you know, that was the price of war. Mm. Joyce, casualty figures have been really hard to confirm throughout this war. The attacks on the refugee camp are no different. But please do tell us how many people were seeking refuge in Jabalia refugee camp. Uh, So, Indira, this is the largest uh, refugee camp in Gaza out of eight. Uh, But when we talk about Gaza and refugee camps, most of these were formed after the Nakba uh, for Palestinians after uh, Israel's war of independence in 1948. Uh, So technically, uh, people have been living there for over uh, 70 uh, 70 years. Uh, At the same time, their status has not been... Uh, cleared, and as the conflict dragged on, the situation worsened uh, on the ground. What we saw in uh, the last few days, uh, these were not the first airstrikes on on Jabalia. Israel has hit now six times um, the camp. Uh, It's, as as Elise mentioned, it's very densely uh, populated. What we know from uh, the Hamas Health Ministry is at least 197 people died. Hundreds are... um, are wounded. Uh, with the blackout and communications on and off, and with the situation uh, on the ground very murky, it's hard to uh, confirm if the leaders that were targeted were actually uh, were actually killed or not. The, the problem uh, we have at hand is that Israel know that there will be civilian target, targets in Jabalia. The answer uh, from the Israeli army Yes, but we told them to evacuate, but they didn't. Um, And then the next question becomes, evacuate to where? Mm -hmm. Some of the people in Jabalia had evacuated from uh, farther in in northern Gaza. So we're talking about a dreadful situation where even the the, the displaced from this war have no safe place to go. Emily, Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Jordan, and Egypt, issued statements condemning Israel's attack on the Jabalia refugee camp. Bahrain withdrew its ambassador Thursday and cut economic ties. That was the first Abraham Accords country to do so. What have other countries done? Well, we should say that... um the United Nations came out and said that this was a that this could constitute a war crime. Um, I think that it's important, though, to highlight the United States' reaction since it's such a prominent um, supporter and backer of Israel and this war. Um, you know, John Kirby of the Pentagon was asked about it and said, "Oh, I'm, I, I, you know, I, it's not for me to say whether or not this is a legitimate target." And so I think the, the refugee camp that is, and I think increasingly what we are going to see is a um, a widening gap between not only uh, Arab countries, but the United Nations and sort of what we think of as the international community um, and the United States and its perhaps its closest allies on, uh, on Israel's behavior. So communications outages, meanwhile, continue to affect Gaza. Israel cut phone and internet services in Gaza despite the ongoing humanitarian crisis. Elise, how are these outages affecting the work of humanitarian organizations and journalists who are working in Gaza? Well, I mean, the aid agencies are warning, and we heard um, from the spokesman of UNRWA uh, um, how difficult it is to work um, without a communications blackout. But the agencies are warning that the blackouts are severely disrupting their work. It's in this already dire situation. 
They're trying to help people on the ground. They're completely cut off from the outside world, no internet, no mobile service. And that means people can't call for ambulances. Um, The assistance is severely hampered. And it also puts these agencies in jeopardy as they lose contact with their team members. They can't verify the safety, the rapidly deteriorating situation, you know, from the civilians who are trapped. They don't already have little food, water, medicine, but then they can't get it to the places where it needs to go the most. And, and, you know, as Emily just said, I think, you know, there's this increasing gap between what the rest of the world sees and, and what Israel feels is a just cause. I think even the United States now is growing increasingly uncomfortable. In the beginning, you know, we saw this, as Emily said, big bear hug. But now, you know, that bear hug is, you know, I think growing less tight. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfeld, told the Security Council earlier this week that it was very concerned about the shutdown of communications, and it said it imperils the life of civilians, U.N. personnel, and humanitarian workers. I might add and risks exacerbating the humanitarian situation. I might add that we've seen Elon Musk say he would offer his Starlink satellite internet service to aid organizations. I think that, you know, I'm not sure Israel sees that as a non-starter and they would have to agree and you don't have the terminals there. But not only does the it interrupt the aid, but, you know, people and evacuees in the southern part of, of the Gaza Strip still have family members in the north, and the lack of communication is only intensifying everyone's concerns. So I think not only is it a humanitarian issue, but the, the part of the inability for everybody to know what's going on as people are trying to make their way from the north to the south and the Israeli troops are coming in, I mean, it really exacerbates Uh, the situation on the ground. Hmm. Joyce, prior to the October 7th attacks, there were some 18,000 Gazans who had permits to cross into Israel and work where they could earn significantly more money than in Gaza, basically day laborers. Um, Those workers were detained over the past three weeks by Israel and were finally expelled from Israel today with numbered tags on their ankles and told to walk home. Tell us about this and what conditions did they report um, from how they were held over the last three weeks? No, this is, uh, again, one of the most uh, you know, depressing situations in, 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 this, in this war is that people who had left uh, that day have been stranded, whether in uh, the occupied West Bank, others in Jerusalem that have been uh, kicked out, and they've lost all connection uh, with, their, uh, with their families. Uh, so now they're being uh, asked, uh, to leave, but, uh, you know, the same situation with what we've discussed earlier, go to where and with what, uh, with what, uh, papers and with what, uh, permits. So, uh, there is no, uh, mechanism yet that we see from the Israeli government on how to process the return uh, of these people and to where, and then there is no mechanism also from the Palestinian Authority where some of these people have been camping in, uh, Ramallah with no connection to their families whatsoever and no idea uh, where to uh, where to go next. 
Well, meanwhile, Egypt has opened the Rafah border crossing for severely injured Palestinians and those who are dual nationals. Um, we've heard this week that people who are Egyptian nationals were being held behind the lines and, and you know, very upset because they weren't allowed to cross through. What is what sounds like a chaotic situation at the Rafah crossing? Tell us, Joyce, and why was Egypt reluctant to open its border before now? Yes, so the reluctance, to start with your second part of the question, the reluctance has been because of the course of this conflict, because of Egyptian uh, fears that they will end up uh, with uh, refugees that would never return. The history of this conflict, as you know, Indira, 1948, 1967, 1973 wars, we've seen big influx of refugees to Arab countries that are still there. They never returned. So that's a big Egyptian concern. In uh, the last few days, we've seen the Egyptians open Rafah in coordination with Israel to foreigners and wounded. The goal is to let 7,000 foreigners out, but so far we haven't seen uh, that number reached yet. We've seen President Biden confirm that 74 Americans have crossed out out of uh, 400 Americans. So we're hoping to see more people um, get out. And as Tamara Rifai mentioned, uh, some aid has been coming into um, into Gaza through Rafah, but it's a drop in the bucket when it comes to the needs um, on the ground. So this is an all-around very tough situation for uh, for Egypt, uh, for Gazans, and uh, the coordination with, with Israel to alleviate the humanitarian situation. On Wednesday, President Biden was interrupted by a protester calling for a ceasefire in Gaza at a campaign event in Minnesota. Mr. President, if oh you care God. about Jewish people as a rabbi, I need you to call for a ceasefire right now. No. No. That was Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg from the group Jewish Voices for Peace. Emily, this isn't the first time that protesters have interrupted political events calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. How has Biden responded to these calls? Well, in this in this case, okay. So, so uh, JVP is a leftist Jewish group group, and a rabbi um, from JVP called for a ceasefire, and Biden replied, um, "I think we need a pause." And I think it's really important to say that that is not the same thing as agreeing, yes, we need a ceasefire. Um, the administration and, it, you know, several members of Congress, including um, Jewish Democratic members of Congress, like Congressman Nadler and Congressman Goldman, have said we need, it's time for a humanitarian pause, which is based, and, and this has also been echoed by um, sort of mainstream liberal Jewish groups here in the United States, which would basically be a pause in the fighting, set up humanitarian corridors, establish safe zones, let aid in, um, this is critiqued by some from saying, well, why are you giving Hamas a moment to regroup? And by others who say, okay, you're going to get food and water and, and then bomb people again, right? Like, how, how does that compute? Um, but that is, that is currently the line that, that sort of the mainstream democratic position is um, cessations and hostilities, right? So humanitarian pauses to make it, uh, to, to have a more humane war. Now, whether or not, um, I think there are some who would say, that looking at the war thus far, there's no reason to believe it would continue in a humane way. But 
that is is sort of the administration's line, and it is it's just important to stress it's it's not the same thing as uh, a ceasefire. Elise, let me ask you: How much control does President Biden have, or the U.S. in general, over whether there is a pause or a ceasefire, or whatever what you want to call it, between Israel and Hamas? And we have Secretary of State Tony Blinken right now, um, hard at work on diplomacy. Is he even going to come back with anything? I mean, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been pretty, you know, firm in his stance. Um, but you have to wonder, is he going to throw the United States a bone by giving Blinken some deal to come back with? I, I mean, look, on on the face of it, the U.S. is really the only country that can influence Israel. The question is, is it going to use the influence it has? And this has always been the test of U.S. power in this conflict is the ability to move Israel. I mean, keeping U.S. military aid flowing to Israel would mean keeping some leverage, but that's only if you're willing to, you know, say that the aid is conditioned on Israel acting in a certain way. And, you know, the U.S. is never going to do that. I say right now, I think right now he probably has leverage to get some more aid in, maybe on some safe zones and maybe one pause to get aid in and, and wounded and hostages out. Um, and But as we said, I think the administration knows that how Israel feels about, you know, mass casualties are an acceptable price. Uh, so a ceasefire is, is a non-starter. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu said again today that even a temporary pause is a non-starter until hostages are released. I think that's the kind of puzzle that Secretary Blinken is trying to work on. He's trying to get at least some more hostages out. Then maybe Israel could have some, you know, agree to a pause. And that means working with Qatar, working with Egypt to work with Hamas. Um, I think the U.S. really wants to end this quickly so they can get to a peace process. That's the leverage that he has with Arab states. Um, right now, that's really what diplomats tell me the only saving grace is that if this leads to a peace process, otherwise the U.S. has really lost so much leverage in their eyes. I think right now a brief humanitarian pause and maybe one, I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about regular Mm -hmm. ones, an occasional one. Let's turn now to AI. The U.K. announced the world's first agreement to help manage the most highly advanced forms of artificial intelligence. It happened at a two-day AI summit near London. Tech bosses from 28 countries attended. Here's British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. We agreed and published the first ever international statement about the nature of all of those risks. It was signed by every single nation represented at this summit, covering all continents across the globe and including the United States and China. Some said we shouldn't even invite China. Others said that we could never get an agreement with them. Both were wrong. A serious strategy for AI safety has to begin with engaging all the world's leading AI powers. And all of them have signed the Bletchley Park communique. Interesting symbolism there, having this meeting at Bletchley Park, which of course was significant in World War II as a place where code breakers in the UK um, did a lot of important work. Emily, tell us what was agreed to in the communique and how important was it that Sunak was able to bring together tech leaders like Elon Musk and world leaders in the same summit? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I we should. He's he's had enough uh, bad press. We can give him a little bit of credit where it's due. Um, Sunak did. You know, he he did. 
do a major international convening. And it was impressive that both the U.S. and China signed on and that, that um, you know, that the world is communicating on developing technologies. Like, sure, that's and, and it, it's it's sort of an example of the post-Brexit global Britain that we were promised and heard about. And, and so, it, yes, it's it's a, it's a feather in his cap. Um but at the same time, although they all agreed, you know, to work together, it's these technologies develop, we, the White House and its al- or the United States and its allies are also having their own separate meetings on AI. The EU is having its own separate discussions on AI. And so I sort of, I, 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 we should be wary of saying that this means that the world is all now working totally in concert um, on this, which I think, I mean, I think they would, I think various parties uh, would admit to that as well, right, that there's still going to be competition. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think we should be skeptical that cooperation is going to play a greater role than um, uh, than co- uh, competition, even though even though they did manage to get together in London. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Panama, where the Panama Canal Authority is decreasing the number of ships allowed to cross. From now until this coming February, daily crossings will shrink from 25 to 18. The authority says severe drought from El Nino weather pattern is behind the latest changes. Elise, tell us what effect these new restrictions are likely to have on the supply chain, um, especially as we're coming into the holidays. Well, you remember in 2021, one of the largest container ships ever got stuck for days in the Suez Canal and that choked off trade. And then there was this huge demand for goods during the pandemic, and and that strained supply chains. Well, the same thing is happening here. You know, basically, the canal doesn't have enough water. That's used to raise and lower ships um, and creating expensive headaches for, you know, shipping companies and about water use in Panama because the passage of one ship, it's about as much water as, as a million Panamanians use a day. So now they're looking for new water sources. There's talk about you know, building a new reservoir um, or perhaps, you know, going without new water source, the canal could lose significant amounts of business. But now we're in a race against climate change and they're talking about land routes in Mexico, Colombia, other countries. That's going to be very expensive. We're going to have unpredictable delays. As you said, during it hasn't been that big of a big deal over the summer. But as we get into the holidays, it's going to take longer, more expensive unpredictable delays. There's talk about transporting goods between Asia and the United States, again, through the Suez Canal. But all of this is going to take a really long time and very expensive to figure out. So what that means is, you know, you're going to have to order earlier for the holidays and everything's going to be a lot more expensive. But, you know, it's a much bigger problem than just a few months now. The, you know, climate change and the El Nino, as you said, um, it's causing a very big problem for canals like this. The Panama Canal and the Suez Canal. Well, Elise, tell us a little more about that. How do you see climate change continuing to affect economic transit in general going forward? It's obviously affecting the Panama Canal. Tell us how you see this, you know, panning out in other regions. Well, I mean, you have climate change in terms of water, but then you have climate change in terms of what people are trying to do with emissions and, you know, less using less, um, you know, flights and more, you know, more ground routes and all this shift to, you know, more alternative energy is going to become much more expensive. It's going to take a lot longer and it is going to cause a supply chain problem. I think what's going to happen ultimately 
is that there's going to have to be more localized supply chains. You know, right now we get mostly everything from China. So I think what, you know, and I think what the pandemic showed, but certainly it's also what people are talking about in um, corporate America is looking for more localized alternative supply chains, more local manufacturing. I think that's what we're going to see more of a shift because, you know, getting, you know, these ships through these large, um, these large ships through these types of canals are increasingly difficult. If you saw something like that through the Panama Canal, like what we saw in 2021 through the Suez Canal, it could be devastating for the United States. Mm -hmm. So I think more localized manufacturing. And I think that's one of the things that's really in President Biden's, you know, um, domestic policy in terms of infrastructure and in terms of climate change. It all kind of fits together in terms of manufacturing locally. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure we get to Pakistan, where almost 1.7 million Afghan refugees are being ordered to leave the country. Chaotic scenes are unfolding at Pakistan's border crossings. Joyce, Afghan refugees were ordered to leave by Wednesday. Today is Friday. What does the situation at the Pakistan-Afghanistan border look like now? And why did Pakistan order the refugees to leave? Indira, it's, as you mentioned, it's absolute chaos. People are thrown in buses and trucks and just moved across the border. We've seen um, this kind of repatriations, forced repatriations in the past, but they weren't on this scale. So uh, the Pakistani government said on Monday that around 200,000 uh, Afghan nationals uh, had left. Uh, it's it's likely uh, to worsen. We have uh, two million uh, uh, Afghans who live in uh, in in Pakistan uh, as uh, as refugees, and uh, the mass uh, uh, expulsion is being uh, just pitched by the government that it is to very anti-refugee sentiment to protect the public welfare and to make Pakistan uh, safer. This, of course, is coming on the backdrop of increased tension between uh, Afghanistan and the Taliban uh, government and Islamic government in uh, uh, in Afghanistan uh, two years after uh, the the U.S. withdrawal. So this is one uh, to watch, but it's it's uh, it's quickly uh, worsening and it's not getting getting enough attention from international organizations or people, governments who could pressure Islamabad. Hmm. Joyce, also, you know, one bit of news out of China this week, the former Chinese president Li Keqiang was once seen as a contender for the country's top leadership post, but he died last Friday at the age of 68. Until last year, he served as the country's premier, which was a role in charge of the economy from 2013 till March of this year. What type of a leader was he? And I'm also interested in the fact that there was immediate skepticism about the cause of his death. And, you know, tell us how that reflects mistrust in Chinese leader Xi Jinping. No, uh, sure. Uh, so uh, Li uh, is 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 an English-speaking uh, economist. He comes from a cadre of uh, politicians that uh, advocated for more openness uh, to Western uh, ideas. Uh, I mean, obviously, Indira, people do get heart attacks. Uh, 
A lot of people get heart attacks, but this is happening in China. And uh, that's fueling some uh, skepticism at how uh, he died. Uh, you know, in Russia, uh, some politicians sometimes or activists against Putin fall from the windows. In the Middle East, they uh, get uh, blown up. In other countries, uh, they get thrown in jail. Uh, in China, they uh, mostly disappear. And um, and with Li, he... he Sora exited the scene after differences with uh, Xi Jinping uh, last year. Uh, we haven't heard uh, from him in, in, in almost a year. And that's why uh, his, his death at age 68 is being viewed uh, with, uh, with uh, skepticism from the uh, uh, people and uh, some people in China. It also comes after a series of... Uh, also unask, unexplained oustings in, in China. Uh, former leader Hu Jintao, who is uh, actually close to him, was uh, was uh, was ousted. Uh, we're seeing Xi Jinping uh, go in a very different di- direction than what Li advocated, in a sense, uh, uh, propping up nationalism and uh, uh, more anti-Western, uh, uh, anti-U.S., uh, 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 rhetoric in uh, in uh, pushing China forward. Mm-hmm. And does this reflect mistrust by the Chinese in their leader, Xi Jinping, the fact that there are conspiracy theories about um, Li Keqiang's death? Yes, for sure. And there has been, I mean, uh, on... on uh, if we monitor the Chinese uh, social media, Weibo, the equivalent of Twitter, there is a lot of skepticism there, but there is also an admiration to uh, to Li, uh, hashtag likes, flowers uh, sent out to him. So there is a sense of uh, sentimentalism to uh, to his era, to what we what he's done on the economic uh, front uh, in China, especially as China still struggles uh, to. Uh, turn uh, the page of the uh, uh, pandemic and uh, uh, in the face of increasing youth empl- unemployment in, uh, in the country. All right. With the little time we have left, I want to go around the room and hear about what you're all watching in the coming week. Emily, what's in your reporter's notebook? I think it's worth keeping an eye on, on Israeli society itself, which is which is still reeling uh, and which is deeply angry at its government, at Netanyahu, who has sort of distinguished himself by refusing to take any blame for uh, the horrific attack on October 7th. Um, And as in particular, as Israeli society becomes more critical of, uh, you know, as as the Israeli government and Israeli authorities crack down on dissent in the country, I think that's that's worth watching, too. Mm -hmm. Elise Labatt, what's in your reporter's notebook? Well, I'm also watching what's happening um, in Israel and, you know, the divide between Netanyahu's work habit. But I'm also looking at Saudi Arabia. The defense minister, the brother of um, Crown, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was over here um, this week meeting at the White House with Washington, um, all across Washington, at the Pentagon, State Department. But the Saudis have been very quiet. And there's a lot of talk about you know, you would think on the face of it that this deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia is a non-starter now that, you know, we're seeing all this carnage in Gaza. Um, But the fact that the Saudis have been very quiet um, suggests to me, and, you know, not um, uninformed sources say that there's still a lot of talks about the way forward. And 
I think as we hear more about the day after, that'll become more prevalent. And Joyce Karam, quickly, what's in your reporter's notebook that you'll be watching next week? Uh, For sure, the situation in Gaza, uh, Secretary Blinken's uh, trip as he heads to Jordan on uh, uh, Saturday, uh, all of that, hoping that we get a humanitarian pause even for a few days to to just help uh, the people uh, trapped in, in, in Gaza. A big thank you to our wonderful panelists in this all-female hour of the International News Roundup. Emily Tampkin, reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Elise Labatt, founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi News. And Joyce Karam, senior news editor at Al Monitor and author of the China Middle East News Briefing. Thank you so much. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Adrian Danhauser. Chris Castano is our digital editor. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. And Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. We come to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan from the Associated Press. This is 1A. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.